In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Beloved Orthodox Christians, <clears throat> today we are celebrating the Annunciation, Feast of the Annunciation of the Most Holy Lady Theotokos and Ever-Virgin Mary. Annunciation of what? Annunciation of the good tidings of the mystery that was hidden from eternity. The mystery of God's incarnation. That is why the Annunciation, in a theological terms, is called the Feast of the Incarnation. The mystery that was hidden before eternity. For God, our Savior, seeing that humanity was unable to fulfill that destiny for which it was created, to be united with God, but rather it fell even in things contrary to God, into sin and passion and death. He himself took upon himself to do that for us, to bridge that gap, that chasm that separated humanity from him, himself to bridge it, himself to close that gap between him and us. And how did he do it? In a marvelous way, by he himself becoming human, one of us, and thus opening to humanity, way to him. For by bringing together to, uh, his divine nature with his human nature, without separation and without mingling, entirely united in his person, he opened for humanity way of participating into his divinity. For since we share, after his incarnation, our humanity with him, and his humanity is entirely, forever united to his divinity, we have by means of this incarnation, this amazing mystery of God becoming man, a way open to his divinity. That is what was announced today that God willed to enact this plan of salvation, the plan that was from before the ages in the council of the Holy Trinity, God had already made this plan and was enacting it slowly, one step at a time. Why one step at a time? Because for him to become a human, there should have been among humans a person worthy to have to, to receive our Savior, from whom he would take the flesh. Because our Savior, God our Savior, will not dwell place where there is sin and corruption and passion, things contrary to him. He needed a vessel in which to abide. He needed a human being so pure, so sinless, that from whom he would take the flesh to make his own. And to arrive to the stage where such a human would be, he had to cleanse generations after generations of people, of holy people, of one particular stock which he chose because of their worthiness, the stock of Abraham and the house of the tribe of Judah and the house of David because of their righteousness. And from them he cleansed one generation after another until arriving at that time when such a beautiful person would be born. A stem would come out from that root so beautiful that it would be able to blossom forth Christ as a beautiful flower. And that stem was the most holy Theotokos, the ever-Virgin Mary. A person so pure, so sinless, so comely spiritually that God was well pleased to make his abode in her and to take from her his flesh. 
That is why the Theotokos is unique among human beings. Of all the humans that lived and shall live on the face of the earth, she was the one in whom God was well pleased. And that is why he chose her to be his mother according to the flesh. So that becoming her son according to the flesh, he would have us unite with him in the humanity that he had assumed, becoming one of us. And we believe that the Most Holy Theotokos conceived our Savior in virginity, being virgin before and during and after the conception and birth of our Savior. And this is the dogma of the Church, meaning that it is not simply a pious belief in honor of the Theotokos and to honor her virginity. No, on this dogma, heed to this, on this dogma depends our salvation. And one may ask, how is it on the dogma of the virginity of the Most Holy Theotokos depends our salvation? I shall explain what St. Maximus the Confessor, great, one of the greatest among the Church's theologians, tells us. For our Savior made sure that his conception would be above nature, not according to the law of generation of all the other human beings. Because that law of generation of men and women coming together was enacted after the fall of Adam and Eve. It didn't exist in paradise. It was enacted after the fall of Adam and Eve. And it contains in itself a passionate element. A passionate element of men and women coming together. Which means that at the root of every man's conception, there is that passionate element which makes every human being to be corruptible. Because from passion comes corruption and the end of corruption is death. That is why death was able to reign over all human beings. Because apart from us, ourselves committing our own sins, our very root, our very conception, our very coming to this earth is grounded, is rooted in this passionate way of procreation. Therefore, in our veins ran the corruptibility. In our veins ran the, that which death could claim as its own. Because our very root was corrupted. Because of the way of the procreation that was enacted after the fall of Adam and Eve. Therefore, if our, if our Savior wanting to liberate us from death, his flesh could not be the product of that same passionate way of procreation. His flesh had to be above it. And truly it was above it. That is why our Savior was conceived in virginity in the womb of the Most Holy Theotokos. And that way in his flesh there was no a single title, not so single trace of corruption. Because the root of his the conception, that is how he was conceived, defied this passionate wave of conception. And that is why in his vain corruptibility did not run. And that is why when he dies, Death has nothing to hold him by, because death does not recognize that corruptibility and passionate way of, of conception that it found in all the other human beings. And that is why it cannot hold it, and our Savior rises from the dead. And not only rises from the dead, but makes his incorruptible flesh to be food for us, to be source of incorruption for us, so that we also may defeat that corruptibility and that passionate way of conception in ourselves by partaking 
of his incorruptible flesh. That is why it was important that our Savior should be conceived without that mode of conception like all the other human beings, so that his flesh wouldn't be tainted by passion and and corruption. Not only sin didn't approach him personally, for he sin was far away, devil tried to bring temptations to him, but was entirely destroyed in every attempt. For the, the not only our Savior was not tempted, but it couldn't even come close to our Savior. Not only our Savior therefore was free from sin himself, for he is the only sinless one, but his very conception was supernatural, was his very conception, was free from passion and pleasure and corruptibility. That is why he is able to defeat death. His body is, cannot be, his humanity cannot be held by death because death couldn't find anything of its own in him. And he becomes for us also the source of incorruption. That is why we partake of his flesh and blood. That is why St. Ignatius, the God-bearer, calls his flesh the antidote to death. What a beautiful way of uh, understanding it. Antidote is that which counteracts against poison. And therefore, since we all have poison uh, of passion running and corruption running in our veins because our own sins and because the mode of conception with which we were, we were conceived, his flesh, which is free of all, of all this, when we partake of it, becomes for us an antidote of that poison of corruption that runs in our soul, in our mind, in our veins, spiritually speaking, of course. That flesh and blood of our Savior, which is free of all this and defeated death, becomes an antidote for us to defeat that poison. That is why salvation is Nowhere except in the body of our Savior, for there is no freedom from death, corruption, and passion except in his body, which is the church. Look how beautifully St. Maximus explains that that one dogma of the church, on that dogma of the church of the virginity, virginal conception and birth through the Theotokos of our Savior, depends all our salvation. Therefore, those who denigrate or put it as a secondary, the teaching of the church concerning the Most Holy Theotokos, that she was virgin, as we confess, throughout the service of the church, throughout the, the teachings of the fathers, she was virgin when she conceived our Savior, and when she gave birth to our Savior, she remained a virgin. On this depends our salvation, and we should hold to it as to the anchor that this is one among all the other necessary dogmas, which if we are Orthodox Christians should confess, we should never relegate it to the secondary uh, uh, place. Therefore, those who do that, and there are those among Christians who truly do this, this terrible thing of saying that it is of no consequences if our Savior was conceived in virginity or not, and if the Most Holy Theotokos was truly virginal uh, mother, uh, th 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 those who call themselves Christians and yet say this cannot claim to be Christians because they deny the very basis of salvation, of the work of redemption that Christ enacted for us. But let us, who are Orthodox Christians, hold on to this, to this dogma, hold on to the faith, and in the Feast of the Annunciation, remember that every single part of the teaching of the Church even those that, those that we do not understand and it's difficult for us to probe its death is 
it's not, it's compulsory, not optional, not something that we can, yes, accept, and if we don't want, we don't. No, it's compulsory and necessary because nothing, there is nothing superfluous in the teachings of the church. And every single part makes this grand mosaic of our salvation. If you take one part of the whole picture becomes distorted. Therefore, let us hold on to the teachings of the church concerning Most Holy Theotokos, that she was truly on this day, she conceived, the Most, uh, the Most Holy Theotokos conceived our Savior. The whole creation was groaning and waiting for this moment when God would enact his plan of our salvation. And when that chosen person, that chosen girl who was so pure that God was well pleased in her, would say those blessed words, here is the handmaid of the God, of, 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 of God, be unto me according to his word. That word, those words of humility and obedience and willingness to become helpmate of God in the work of our salvation. Look how great the place of the Theotokos is. She is the helpmate of God, one who helped him to in, in, in our deliverance, who became a willing participant, a willing tool in the work of the incarnation and our salvation. This, on this day, on the day of annunciation of these great tidings, the whole creation rejoices. Because on this day, that gap, that chasm that separated man from God is bridged. And man, and man is united, humanity is united forever with divinity. Let us celebrate it piously, beloved Christians, thanking God for his mercy, for his love for us. That he didn't leave anything that was needed to be done for our salvation. Let us rejoice also in the good tidings that Theotokos received and let us confess her always that she was virgin in conception during her pregnancy and after, after being delivered, giving birth to our Savior, for upon this depends our salvation. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Beloved Orthodox Christians, <clears throat> brothers and sisters in Christ, on this fifth Sunday of the Holy and Great Lent, <clears throat> we come to the Sunday before the entrance of our Savior, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, into the city of Jerusalem, where he would enter with glory in order to prepare himself for the passion, deliverance of men through his dying on the cross and his resurrection. And in anticipation to the bringing of coming of our Savior to Jerusalem, the church has appointed the reading of the Holy Gospel where our Savior himself tells his disciples what is it that will happen in Jerusalem, for they were already setting their face to go up to Jerusalem. And our Savior says that, <clears throat> behold, brethren, we go up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man shall be betrayed to the high priests and to the Pharisees and to the scribes, and they shall torture him, they shall spit upon him, and they shall crucify him, and they shall kill him. This is what our Savior tells to the disciples to strengthen them, to understand that they are going to Jerusalem that for that purpose, that our Savior should undergo his passion, to undergo the saving fashion for the sake of saving the humankind. 
And as he was saying this, two of his disciples, thinking that going up to Jerusalem would be the, the coming of the kingdom straight away, the glorious coming of the kingdom, say that, ask that question, that in his kingdom they should be the closest to him. That when he shall be in his glory, those two disciples, which is St. John the theologian and his brother, James, the sons of Zebedee, they should be the closest to him. One, even they say, one on the right hand and the other on the left hand. And our Savior responds to them with mysterious words. And he says that, are you able, you ask to be closest in my glory, but are you able to drink that cup and to baptize, be baptized with that baptism which I shall receive? What is the meaning of these words? What is this cup and what is this baptism? The fathers explain that the cup and the baptism are the cross, the death of our Savior. That is, the drinking of the cup is him drinking up the full to fullness, the sufferings for the sake of the humankind. And his baptism is his crucifixion and death on the cross. Therefore, he tells them, if you want to be in my glory, are you able to do this of taking up my cup and drinking it and receiving the baptism which is I, with, with which I am going to be baptized in, Jer in Jerusalem? Therefore, he tells them, that in order to enjoy the glory with God, in order to be, to be closest to God, the way is through the cross and the suffering of the cross, of <clears throat> following our Savior and taking up a cross and partaking of his cup and his baptism. There is no the joy of the resurrection without the passion and the cross of our Savior. There is no gaining of the kingdom without going through the road of suffering and grief with our Savior. But what is more important than this, beloved Christians, it is not just a cup, not just a baptism, not just suffering, not just grief, but our Savior's cup. Our Savior's suffering, our Savior's cross, and His death and resurrection. This is what we are invited to partake of. And this is one of the fundamental things that make Christianity so different from all the other religions, falsely so-called, all the philosophical systems. Why? Because in all the other religions with their false gods, God sits somewhere up high and tells people what to do. They command him, yes, even in grief, they console, but from afar, from very afar. And people are told, yes, go through this and you'll be saved. That is, their gods are high up and from there they command the people what to do. Not so in our Christianity, in our true faith. Here, God came and himself partook of our suffering and opened the door for us and traced the way for us. He didn't sit on his glorious throne as he saw humanity out of its foolishness depart from God and plunge itself into the hands of the devil and become enslaved to death and to suffering and grief. He not only commiserated with us, but he came and did for us that which we couldn't do ourselves. He took upon ourselves our human nature and went through the veil of tears, went through grief and suffering. He partook of pain for us. For us, he overcame that with which devil fights against us. For he fights us by throwing at us temptations and grief and suffering. 
And he overcame both of those sides, that is, temptation of sin on one side and the grief and suffering of death on the other. For when our Savior went out into the desert, the devil tried to lure him with sin just as he does every other human being, and his head was crushed by our Savior's might. He wasn't even able to approach our Savior with those three generic temptations. And there in the desert, when our Savior fasted as a man 40 days, there our Savior overcame, was victorious, made rather, our nature to be victorious over sin and the temptation of the devil. And by now taking upon himself the cross and accepting the suffering of death, by resurrecting himself, he also crushes the might of death over the humanity. Therefore, our Savior did everything for us. He is not telling us to do things on our own. He traced the way and tells us, children, follow me. Yes, it will be difficult. The road is thorny because life is suffering. And the temptations that are thrown against us must sound and look insurmountable. But I have overcome them. I have traced the way. Follow in my footsteps. And in every moment of grief, you will also find consolation. In every moment of temptation, if you are courageous to trust in me and follow me, every temptation will also be an occasion for your victory. That is how Christianity is different from all other religions. God does not command things to us. He did things for us. He did. He brought the salvation for us. He made our human nature to be victorious over our enemy for our sakes instead of us. That's how great our God is. That's how far removed the false gods are from our God. For demons in their, in their even in the extreme of them wanting to lure humanity to false religions, wasn't, were not able to invent such a glorious thing because their mind is far removed from mind of God. And in every other religion, gods are aloof of humanity. They're somewhere else removed and humans are left at the end alone to overcome their enemy, which is the devil. Not so in Christianity. Our Savior did things for us and he is our general, our leader, true leader, even from human uh, understanding, which leader and which general inspires more confidence? The one who sits in the headquarters and tells the soldiers to go and fight, or the one who is on the battlefield and who himself gives example to fight and traces the way of the attack against the enemy? He is beloved by his soldiers. He inspires confidence. He inspires enthusiasm to surmount even the unsurmountable obstacles in the battlefield. This is what our Savior did for us. He didn't sit simply out in the, his glorious throne and tell us what to do. He came and did it for us. And thousands upon thousands of human beings, men, women of every race, every tongue, every both sexes, of every age, were so inspired by this victory that our Savior wrought for us that they followed in his footsteps to abandon everything and to wage that battle against the devil, to wage the battle against sin and to be patient in every temptation that comes upon them. And as one of the greatest among these true athletes, true soldiers of Christ, we commemorate today on the fifth Sunday of the Great Land. Who is she? She is St. Mary of Egypt, the icon, the symbol, the great, uh, the great example of repentance, 
of power of repentance and the power of God's mercy to forgive and to cover with love all sin, no matter how deadly, how terrible, how, uh, uh, how many of them are. The church so loves St. Mary of Egypt and her story, which was written by St. Sophronius, Patriarch of Jerusalem, that she appointed, the church appointed that every, that the fifth Sunday of every holy and great land, her uh, memory should be celebrated. So that the, the faithful have not only to celebrate her, uh, uh, the, the uh, memory according to the Minean, that is, the set calendar, which coincidentally also coincides to be today, the 1st of April, but also on Sunday, on a day of the resurrection and during the Holy and Great Lent, her memory should be always kept. It, I will not go through reminding what's beautiful, how compunctionate her stories. Every Orthodox Christian has a duty to know her life, to go through her life and to read it from, from beginning to the end. What we see in her life is that a woman who had, from youth up, had plunged herself in sins, in terrible depravity. Any carnal sin that was possible, she had committed. That from youth up, for 17 years, she was deprived of any semblance of not only pious life, but resemblance of a normal human life, because she was so enamored with filth of carnal sin. And yet, even in this depth of hell, in this depth of passion and sin, God did not abandon her, and he was, he was working on her salvation, luring her to come out from this pit of, of sin. And this happened when she was lured to go from her native Egypt to the city of Jerusalem, and there, at the moment when she thought that she wanted to enter into this uh, church of the Anastasis, the resurrection of our Savior, to venerate the cross, there dawned on her because she could not enter. She was not allowed by the invisible force to enter into, that, into the church. Dawned on her everything that she had done. That how much she had de deprived herself of, of God's grace and how many sins she had committed. Everything came together as a flood of repentance over her. And right there she repented with the, from the bottom of her heart and promised made a promise to abandon everything and to dedicate herself to repentance, which she did. After this promise she made in her heart, she was able to enter into the church, venerate the cross, and after she came out, the promise she had made, she kept. She went beyond Jordan, that is, in the desert on the eastern side of, of Jordan, and there she spent 47 years in solitude, without seeing a single human being, without having any consolation from men, having tattered clothes and in the end being entirely naked at the, at the, uh, uh, the, in, in the desert, and having just simple bread and roots to eat, which he had with her. And after 47 years, God sent St. Zosimas, the priest, to find her providentially so that she would tell her story to him and also she could partake of the mysteries before death. Marvelous is this story, beloved Christians, of how, how great is the transformation that can be done from bad to evil. We know how great, terrible is the transformation from good to evil. The demons are the example of that. How they're being glorious and, and light-bearing angels, they became darkened fiends of, of, of evil. 
but the transformation of good to, uh, from bad to evil, uh, from bad to good to, to great things, is far more astounding how the, 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 somebody who was entirely submerged in sin can, in a moment of a, of a, of a second, transform and break with this sin, to repent of it and to flee for, to seek salvation. Now, when we hear the life of St. Mary of Egypt, when we hear that beautiful life, some people ask, 47 years in desert. Yes, she spent, uh, she was a sinner, but she spent 17 years in terrible sins, but she spent 47 years in the desert in terrible deprivation, in terrible struggles, in terrible uh, uh, struggles against the demons. Was it that God did not forgive her for 47 years and she, she, he, he wanted her to, to struggle that many years so that she would be deemed worthy of forgiveness after that? No, that is not the case at all. For God forgive, forgave her her sins the very moment when she repented. This is what we learn from the, from the life. For when she repented from the bottom of her heart, there in their city, in the, there in the city of Jerusalem, straightway she was allowed to enter into the church and to venerate the cross. And after making the promise to dedicate herself to God, the next day, although she had spent 17 years without church and without communion, she, was re she received so much consolation in her heart and so much boldness that she approached the divine mysteries and take, took communion in the church of St. John the Baptist at the Jordan. That is what is written in her life. Therefore, God forgives right there. God is not the God who wants to suffer people look to see people suffering and to beg for mercy and he won't forgive for many years until no that is not our God that is a strange God our God forgives straight away as she he forgave to to St. Mary of Egypt, as, as we know in the in many examples of St. David, the prophet and king, how he had committed both adultery and murder, and when he repented from the bottom of his heart and said that beautiful prayer, which is known as the 50th Psalm, straight away he, uh, Nathan the prophet received uh, the uh, message from God that his sin was forgiven because he had come with the brokenness of heart and had cut his heart, that is, broken his heart with, uh, uh, with repentance. The same with King Ezekiah, when he knew from Prophet Isaiah that his days were numbered, he asked forgiveness for all the sins where he committed, and he was forgiven that very moment. The same with King Manasseh, who was his son, who had done terrible deeds of impiety. And yet, when he, with broken heart, he offered that prayer, which is known, the prayer of King Manasseh, is read every great compline during the Great Lent, he also received remission of his sin and uh, his, his forgiveness. Therefore, God forgives straight away. Therefore, what is this, what was the need of to go out for 47 years into the desert? The need was not in order to, uh, to uh, appease God and to receive forgiveness, but rather to root out from the heart even the causes that make us sin. Not only to seek forgiveness for our sins, but to dedicate oneself entirely to rooting out from our hearts the passions that lead us to sin so that we won't fall into the same sins again. That is the reason why St. Mary of Egypt went. And that is why all the Holy Fathers and Mothers go into the desert, leave the world, not because God is unforgiving, 
No, God forgives when one asks forgiveness. But in order to make good on the promise that we made, that not to sin again, to make good on the promise that we repented and we want to leave the, uh, the, the sin and become entirely God's, that is why they went, to be keepers of the promise and to root out the very causes that make us sin, that is passion, to mortify them entirely and to make the soul resplendent, entirely brilliant with, uh, uh, with light of, of grace of God. That is the reason, therefore, why St. Mary of Egypt struggled. That is why the, the ascetics struggled in order to become entirely God's and to avoid sin at all costs and not because God was unforgiven towards them. Therefore, let us imitate them as much as we can, beloved Christians. It is superfluous to say that none of us has the strength to go out and to be a desert dweller. That is, no, nobody would advise you this in our day and age because we're weak. And our, in our day and age especially, our human nature is weak and attached to so many things of the world. But we can have them as examples. We can have them as inspiration of how much people were, were dedicated to God, how much they sacrificed in order to make good on their promises. And if we do have them as our inspiration, we also slowly will do one step maybe out of a thousand to be their followers with our whole hearts so that we also make, may trace that way that they trace to follow our Savior in his footsteps in becoming victors over sin and death. And that way, to in his resurrection, to, truly to be next to him, on the right hand, on the left, and close to him in his glory. Of this, may our Savior deem us worthy by the prayers of St. Mary of Egypt and of all the saints. Amen. <laughs>